So as we reach the end of this little series on six lies of Satan, this last lie is not his last lie. But it does feel like a bit of a concession to me, a fallback where Satan says, okay, you got me. When I told you that we just needed to get back to normal and that you're not good enough and that you are good enough and that God does not care about that and so you should just go off and be spiritual somewhere on your own, but not religious, I lied. Today, he concedes that we should in fact believe what God says and even do what God says after all, but, and you can trust him on this one, it's not that urgent. Is it true? Is it true that it's not that urgent? As always, let's expose the lie with Scripture before asking why we believe it, and then what happens when we do. Let's, let's expose the lie with Scripture. It's the only weapon we've got. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 1. If you've only got one opening of the Bible in you today, save it for the gospel. But um, if you think you could muster up the strength to, to have both, then we're in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. So Paul writes to the Thessalonian church and says, I do not need to write to the Thessalonian church. It's, it's a weird thing to say. What he's saying is you actually already have, in your knowledge of Scripture, enough to expose this lie. It really is that urgent. And you know this, he says. For you yourselves, verse 2, you yourselves, this is a very emphatic way of putting it, sort of a double statement to say you really got this, church, are fully aware, that word fully, it just adds again that sense of no, 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 you really got this, you know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Well, day of the Lord was, was a defined term that they knew. It was a phrase from the Old Testament from the prophet Amos. Day of the Lord was a phrase that, that really captured what God means when he talks about the end of the world. It's judgment day. It's the end of all things. And the people in Amos believed in judgment they just believed that it would only happen to other people, not them. They believed that it was just other people that needed to prepare themselves for Judgment Day because they were sort of somehow naturally just all right. And so Amos says, nope, you're wrong. We're all up for judgment. And it is not our goodness, as we define it this week, that will save us. It's not our religion not our heritage. It's not the fact that our parents got the baby done. There's no pass mark. There's no technique. There's nothing you can do to tip the scales. And, you know, let's say you've had a pretty rubbish life. You can't start doing good stuff to tip it back in your favor again. There are no things you can do to save yourselves. So basically, Amos demolishes the five lies that we've heard so far, and he says you can only be saved by God, which, by the way, is why they call it saved. It's a gift of grace. It's done to you, regardless of, of, of what you've done, good stuff or bad stuff. You could have done a lot of bad stuff. Your scales might just be on the floor with, with like a grain on the good end, and you can be saved by grace. 
And so you should receive that grace now because it's urgent. Do not put it off. You should receive it now because you might need it now. And Paul, just picking up on all that Amos stuff that they knew, fully knew, says the day might even come at the night, which is a weird thing, but it's so unexpected that the day may even be at night, like a thief in the night, he says. Now, you can't normally guarantee when you're going to be robbed. Thieves don't work by appointment, except for a certain auto repair shop near here. They seem to work that way, but... If a thief called you up and said, I'm going to rob you at 11 a.m. You know, tomorrow, you'd be, like, you'd be ready, wouldn't you? I know you. I know what you'd be ready with. Scholar Leith Samuel says this, if there's one thing certain about the timing, it is that we cannot be certain about the timing. And Jesus himself says, Mark 13, but concerning that day, you know, the day, the Amos day, or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Even Jesus himself does not know when Jesus will return. Therefore, when Satan says to us, it's not that urgent, he has absolutely no way of knowing whether that is true or not. He doesn't know. So, why would anyone believe the lie? Why would anyone believe that it's not that urgent when he cannot know whether it is or it is not? Well, one reason, verse 3, is because our present surroundings lull us into a false sense of security. Look at verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. I have already apologized for this illustration with um, one member of the staff team heavily pregnant and the other just giving birth this week. But a, a situation can blind us to what might come next. If you are nine months and two weeks pregnant, like, you don't need to be Becky to know that, that something's coming out soon. Uh, and yet, you know, every now and then, someone is completely taken by surprise by this. And our, our situations can blind us. Our, our comfort in the world around us can just blind us to something very obvious that is, is coming next. There's a recognized psychological term for this. It's called the mere exposure effect. And some people call it the familiarity principle. It simply observes that we tend to trust the things we know. We trust what we know. So this explains why uh, companies advertise a lot, why they'll saturate you with just one little phrase or one little image over and over and over again. Hannah's going to say, adventure! That's why they do it, Hannah, every single night on that show. Because they're trying to get you used to the product. Now, I love you, sweet pea, and we're not ever going to buy that car because it's rubbish. <laughs> it, um, it explains why traders will, will invest in companies that are domiciled in the same country as they are. It's not that they're necessarily any more safe or any more profitable. It's just that we trust what we know. And, uh, we watched a show the other night where the news reported that some some dangerous candy bars had been recalled by the manufacturer because sharp plastic had gotten into the mix at the factory. And when people heard the news, they started eating more of the candy bars. That they could not believe that anything bad would happen to them because they'd enjoyed that particular candy bar in the past. So actually what happened was, on, is the warning gave them a taste for it and they went to the cupboard and got them out and started eating them on camera. 
Satan takes advantage of this common, fallen human trait, this vulnerability that we have in our system that we trust what we know. He takes advantage of this little thing because he's an expert. We trust what we know. And the people in Thessaloniki, that's the city of the Thessalonians, said, look, we know our town. We know it very well. We like our town. We, we love our things, and we love the stuff that we have around us. So why on earth would we risk missing out on all of these things that we love in exchange for something weird that may or may not happen right now or next week or, or even in our lifetimes at all? I think their response must reveal that there's another lie in there somewhere, something we've not yet exposed. It doesn't really make sense why you would give up on salvation for just a few things around you. There must be more to this. Satan must have a fallback position behind a fallback position that's not yet been exposed for this to make any sense. Okay, Satan says, you got me again. You probably should turn to Christ. But you shouldn't do it just yet. Because if you do it too soon, you'll miss out on what you enjoy doing. So the lie behind the lie is that although salvation pays off in the end, suddenly he concedes that it costs you too much now. Therefore, the best thing you could possibly do is to time the moment of your conversion perfectly and either come to Christ just at the end of your life or just before he returns, whichever it is that comes first. And that way, you will benefit from all of the great things about Christ that suddenly Satan is willing to concede are quite real, but you're going to avoid all of the downsides now and live a good life. Is that true? Is it true that you miss out on a good life if you turn to Jesus today? Well, Jesus goes for this in the gospel reading today, and I'd love it if we turned to that reading in Luke 12. And I'm going to jump back a tiny bit. We're going to look at this parable of Christ in context, look a couple of verses before and after, and see what Jesus is really driving at with it. So let's look at Luke 12, verse 13. Luke 12, 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Dot, dot, dot. Verse 15. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So here, they come up to Jesus and they ask Jesus to arbitrate an argument about money, or really, actually about all of the material things that build up to make this the good life, all the good stuff. So we, ha we have two people here on the cusp of just getting everything. They're just about to inherit all of the things they could possibly want. And if Satan is correct, what you will expect Jesus to do right now is to rebuke them and say something like, don't talk to me about things. Don't you know that you can't have nice things? Don't you know that nice things are bad? Don't you know that God doesn't want you to have any fun? God wants you to get rid of it all, and it will hurt you now, I admit but it will pay off in the end. That's the sermon that Satan says Jesus should have preached. And as Jesus starts this little parable, it sounds as though he's on message. Like, it actually sounds as though he's preaching Satan's sermon. 
Jesus says one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Material things are not what life is all about. They're not your identity. They're not your purpose. They're not who you really are. And to prove it, he told them a parable in verse 16, a saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Good idea, right? Get a 401k. But then the man said to himself, verse 19, Soul... So you see, he's making this an identity-level issue. He's speaking to the essence of who he is. Soul, all of me, he says. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Now you can. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Live the good life now. But God said to him, fool. So like BA from the 18. Sucker. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So it sounds a little bit like what Satan says. You can certainly see how he could twist this to fit with his point. But there's a kicker. Jesus takes this idea now in a direction that we did not expect. He just blows the lie apart with the application of his point. And if you keep reading, and you forget that little heading that's there, it's written by the translators of the Bible to help you navigate your way around the Bible, but it's not Scripture. And Jesus hasn't finished speaking. In fact, he's continuing this discourse into the next little passage. Verse 22, therefore, he says, not finished yet, Therefore, in light of the parable, here's the application or the implication of the parable. I tell you, do not be anxious. So Jesus recognizes that making material things urgent and viewing material things as the key to the good life now has actually made this man into a nervous wreck. It's made him anxious. His apparent relaxed view about how non-urgent this is has made the things of this world urgent to him. You're going to make something urgent one way or another. And for him, these material things, his obsession with success in this world has actually ruined his experience of this world. In fact, it's cost him the good life on both sides of eternity. He never got to live his dream. He spent the whole life preparing for this dream. And I wonder the more he thought about this dream, this this period where he was going to be able to sit back, relax, and enjoy the good life, I wonder the more he thought about that dream, whether the less he thought about God. He put it off and put it off and put it off until, in fact, he was worshipping a different God. In reality, what he did is is he took away the urgency of conversion by choosing to begin hell early. He just started his next life a few years early. So let me ask you, have you? you, Do you have a living hell? Have you believed the lie? Have you believed that it's not that urgent? Has the pursuit of comfort and success made you happy? Or has it made you anxious? I mean, you know, we, 
I live in Fox Chapel. And, and so I speak constantly, particularly to young people who, who've been told, you've got to be really good at reading in kindergarten. Because if you don't nail this thing in kindergarten, you're not going to Harvard. And that will make you happy. And our kids are scratching their hands and they're nervous and, and, and ill and anxious. Because we've told them that this conversion stuff, well, you deal with it later, that's not that urgent. What's really urgent is success now. And it's made them sick. And they're living, they're living hell. Now, if you're a member of the Christchurch Family and Friends page on Facebook, you are officially old. Um, an old person. Uh, but you might have seen something I posted a few weeks ago, which means I am also officially an old person. Because I'm on Facebook. And... Um, an interview with Tyson Fury, the heavyweight boxing champion of the world, one of them. And it's conducted by Robbie Williams, formerly of the boy band Take That. And I am firmly aware that this is one of the more culturally foreign sermon illustrations I've ever shared with you. A 90s Mancunian pop star interviewing a six-foot-nine-inch gypsy. But bear with me, it's a really good one. In the video, <laughs> they discuss the problems of success, these two guys. And they say, they call it paradise syndrome, which is reaching the top of the mountain and finding out that it was not all that it was cracked up to be. And Robbie Williams said, here we are. I have sold 80 million records worldwide. And he's one of the hardest men in the world. And the pair of us could not fight the demons in our heads. I just kept saying, when I get that and I get that and I get that, then I will be happy. We got all of those things. And then it became worse. These two magnificent men, just really gifted at what they do, adored by millions. And they describe anxiety and they describe addiction and they describe the things they did to kind of keep the anxiety down and that yearning to do more and, and how success just made them nervous about what if we don't have success tomorrow. And uh, Tyson Fury in the video, the, the boxer, he talks about how he actually drove his car down the M60, a road in Manchester, and found a bridge and was ready to take his own life because the anxiety of success had driven him to the end. And Satan was whispering to those two magnificent men, just in their ear, just telling them a lie. And Satan is happy to concede that everything he has told you so far has been a lie. Happy in the next breath then to say we should trust him on this one though. It's not that urgent. But it is that urgent. And the lie behind the lie is that God wants to take your fun away and make you miserable now but it will pay off later. When in fact... It's your anxiety that God wants to take away. That's what God wants to take away. And he wants to replace your anxiety with identity. He wants to replace your anxiety with something secure, something that's grounded in eternity, in Christ Jesus himself, by grace as a gift. Those, here's the bonus, those who recognize the urgency of accepting that gift now also get to begin their eternal life early as well. A little bit of heaven on earth. Because anxiety is taken away, identity is given, 
we begin that freedom of eternity this day. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, it's it's so difficult when we we know that that every single one of us has been lied to and every single one of us is uh, outsmarted by the serpent. But you've been so gracious to us in giving us scripture and in giving us your son. So if any of us, Lord God, is is sitting in this room or standing in it with a sense of anxiety, what if this and what, what about that and when this happens? God, I just pray that you would speak against all of those anxieties, that this would be a body of people that grasps very now the sheer grace and beauty of our identity. God, would we start to see ourselves exactly as you see us, as free, as beloved, as made in your image, as having all that we need. And Father God, please uh, just expose these, these sort of lies that say that Christianity is miserable. God, would you make us free and happy and, and up for it. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.